Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 28, 1 Kings chapter 17. As we continue in our study of 1 Kings, the northern kingdom of Israel has just hit the bottom of a spiritual death spiral. The ten tribes have a new king whose first prominent action was to renounce Jehovah God of Israel, who at that time was being represented by, represented by two golden calf idols that Jeroboam had manufactured. And he replaced Jehovah with Baal. Baal was the god of King Ahab's new wife, Jezebel, who was a native of Sidon and Tyre. Now we need to keep her home nation in mind today because it plays a kind of a hidden role in one of the biblical narratives that we're going to examine. Now 1 Kings chapter 17 introduces us to one of the greatest men in the entire Bible, Eliyahu. And he is better known in Christian circles as Elijah, the prophet. The story of Eliyahu covers the next three chapters in 1 Kings and then picks up again in the book of 2 Kings. He's so important that Yeshua invokes Elijah's name on more than one occasion. And later, Old Testament prophets like Malachi, Malachi also speak about him. It's likely that Elijah himself is going to play a key role during the future period that the church calls the Great Tribulation. And we'll talk more about that later. Now we're going to discuss Elijah quite extensively because God chose to use this strange man mightily and entrust him with divine power to perform miracles that in some ways exceeded that of Moses. So with that, let's read 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, 391 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Eliyahu from Tishbi, an inhabitant of Gilead, said to Ahav, As Adonai the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will be neither rain nor dew in the years ahead unless I say so. Then in the, the word of Adonai came to him, Leave here, turn to the east and hide in Wadi Crete near the Yarden. You are to drink from the stream and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he went, and he acted according to the word of Adonai. He went and lived in the Wadi Crete near the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the stream. And, while, and after a while the stream dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then this word of Adonai came to him, Get up, go to Zarfat a village in Sidon, and live there. I have ordered a widow there to provide for you. So he set out, and he went to Zarphat. And on reaching the gate of the city, he saw a widow there gathering sticks. And he called out to her, Please, bring a little water in a container for me to drink. And as she was going to get it, he called after her, 
Please, bring me a piece of bread in your hand. And she answered, As Adonai your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a pot, a little oil in a jug. Here I am, gathering a couple of sticks of wood so that I can go and cook it for myself and my son, and after we've eaten it, we will die. Eliyahu said to her, Don't be afraid. Go, do what you said. But first, use a little of it to make me a small loaf of bread and bring it out to me. And after that, make food for yourself and your son. For this is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. The pot of meal will not get used up, nor will there be fail uh, nor will there fail to be oil in the jug until the until uh, the day Adonai sends rain down on the land. And she went and acted according to what Eliyahu had said. And she, her, uh, he, and her household had food to eat for a long time. The pot of meal did not get used up, nor did there fail to be oil in the jug in fulfillment of the word of Adonai spoken through Elijah. A while later, the son of the woman whose house it was fell ill, and his illness grew increasingly serious until his breathing stopped. And she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, you man of God? Did you come to me just to remind me how sinful I am by killing my son? Give me your son, he said to her. And taking him from her lap, he carried him into the room upstairs where he was staying, laid him on his own bed, and then he cried out to Adonai, Adonai, my God, have you brought this also this misery on the widow I'm staying with by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to Adonai, Adonai, my God, please let this child's soul come back into him. And Adonai heard Eliyahu's cry, the child's soul came back into him, and he revived. Eliyahu took the child, brought him down from the upstairs room into the house, and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son's alive. The woman replied to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of Adonai that you speak is the truth. This mysterious man, Elijah, Eliyahu, simply bursts onto the scene out of nowhere. There's no genealogy given. There's no account of how he came to be a prophet of Jehovah. There's no life history like it was with Samuel, for instance. We know nothing of this man's earlier life. And even though some mention of where he came from is recorded. It's a very general account. and It's ambiguous at that. We're told that he's from a place called Tishbe, but he's also an inhabitant of Gilead. And scholars have different takes on what this means. The most accepted is that his birthplace is the town of Tishbe, located in the upper Galilee region in the territory of the tribe of Naphtali. But that at some point he, he immigrated across the Jordan River to Gilead for an unstated reason. Further, there's never a mention of his tribe. In fact, a handful of later scholars took the radical approach that since his Israelite tribe wasn't given, that he wasn't even Hebrew. He was a Gentile. 
Well, now that wouldn't fit the context of the story whatsoever. All right, and is frankly a replacement theology agenda-driven fabrication that serious Bible scholars of, of all ilks just dismiss out of hand. Now, some Jewish Torah scholars say that he was a Benjamite. Others that he was the tribe of Gad. That would explain him residing in Gilead. Others insist that he was a Levite. All right? Many of the early church fathers agreed that he was a Levite. And so does the Jewish Kabbalistic literature of later times. Now, I'm in agreement with those early church fathers that he was a Levite. Because it was typical for a Levite to be born in one place, eventually move somewhere else to serve God, and also because in the next chapter that speaks of his war against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where he performed a sacrifice, he did so without an intermediary, that is, without a priest. Only Levite priests could perform sacrifices. And it's highly doubtful that the Lord himself would order Elijah to sacrifice on an altar if Elijah wasn't a priest of proper lineage. Now for a reason not given to us in scripture, our first glimpse of Eliyahu has him confronting King Ahav, probably at his palace in Samaria. And Elijah is threatening the king with the warning that he is going to bottle up the skies and not only stop the needed rainfall, but he's also going to keep the dew from forming on the ground. Now further, that until Elijah orders it to begin again, no moisture is going to be provided for growing crops and filling the rivers and streams. Now, Hebrew tradition is that Eliyahu used the occasion of the death of Hiel's two sons to come to the king's palace to bring God's oracle to him. In the previous chapter, we see that someone named Hiel volunteered to rebuild the destroyed city of Jericho. And in, even in the face of a divinely ordained curse against anyone who would attempt to do that, and Jericho had laid in ruins until now, since Israel first crossed the Jordan, led by Joshua, and God had laid the wicked, wicked Canaanite city waste. Hiel did it anyway. And God reacted accordingly by carrying out the consequences of the curse and seeing to the death of two of Hiel's sons. Now, no doubt it was the apostate king Ahav who put Hiel up to this misguided construction project. And so the ancient Hebrew sages say that upon Hiel's son's deaths, Ahav felt obligated to have the funeral at his palace in Shomron, Samaria. And it was at this somber event that Elijah arrived to pay his respects. Now, is that actually the case? I can't say with certainty. But the circumstances easily accommodate that viewpoint. And there's no reason to simply dismiss it because it's not written in the Bible. This explanation is actually first recorded well before the time of Christ. So it does have some veracity. The only reason I even offer it is because, I've, just like I've taught you in prior lessons, there are always reasons and causes behind the actions 
of all of our Bible characters, even if it doesn't tell us what those are. And these reasons and causes were logical and rational and in tune with the societal customs and traditions of that era. The authors and the editors of the books of the Bible didn't usually include such details because to the audience that they thought they were writing on behalf of, these details were generally common knowledge. I mean, if, if today in one of my lessons I said that I drove from Cocoa Beach, Florida to New York City, I wouldn't also have to explain to my listeners that I used an automobile and that I had to purchase gasoline for it along the way and that I drove on roads paved with asphalt and concrete. It's just common knowledge for us. But a thousand years from now, these details might be needed to help establish the context. Eliyahu's threat to King Ahav is interesting on a couple of fronts. First, because it is but an application of the divine threat as issued in Moses' day in Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17. There it says, But be careful not to let yourselves be seduced so that you turn aside serving other gods and worshiping them. If you do, the anger of Adonai will blaze up against you. He will shut up the sky so that there will be no rain. The ground won't yield its produce and you will quickly pass away from the good land that Adonai is giving you. The second front is that Elijah made it clear that he could, on his own authority, make the decision to shut up the skies and then to reopen them. And as we're going to see, this is no idle boast, as that is what actually happened. Now, of course, it was the Lord who directed him to do this. It was... Uh, and with power that was on loan from God to perform this kind of a miracle. But this is the first indication we have of just how great and unparalleled of a career as a prophet that God had intended for Elijah. And third is the matter of the dew. Dew is a lot more than just a pretty decoration that shimmers on plant leaves and slightly dampens the soil. Dew in an arid climate was often critical in keeping crop plants watered and viable, especially at times when no rain was falling. So the lack of both dew and rain indicated something of a catastrophic nature was about to happen that was bound to cause famine and death. Now interestingly, this matter of a prophet having the divine authority and power to stop the rain from falling is going to repeat itself far into the future. The only difference is that Elijah stopped the rain on a relatively localized area. But this future prophet of the latter days is going to stop the rain worldwide. Can you imagine? Listen to this passage in Revelation 11. 11, 3 through 6. 
Also I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two menorahs standing before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to do them harm, fire comes out of their mouth and consumes their enemies. Yes, if anyone tries to harm them, that is how he must die. They have the authority to shut up the sky so that no rain falls during the period of their prophesying. Also they have the authority to turn the waters into blood to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So here we see that the Lord will give the power to stop the rains to a prophet, to them actually who are identified as the famed two witnesses of the end time stories and who will appear during the coming time of the Great Tribulation. But what is even more interesting is the identity of these two witnesses. At least one of them becomes identified for us in the book of the prophet Malachi. In, in uh, Malachi 3 verses 23 and 24 it says this, Look, I will send to you Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with complete destruction. Look, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. So what we have is that Elijah is going to return just before the day of the Lord. This is the pouring out of God's wrath, the return of Messiah. And we have two witnesses appearing. And they're going to order the rain to stop during the entire period of their prophesying, which is 1260 days or three and a half years. But then we have this statement by Yeshua in Luke 4. 24 through 36. And he says, Yes, I tell you that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's true. I'm telling you, when Eliyahu was in Israel and the sky was sealed off for three and a half years, so that all the land suffered a severe famine, there were many widows, but Eliyahu was sent to none of them, only to a widow in Zarphat in the land of Sidon. So let's put this together. We find out from no less than Christ that in 1st Kings, during the reign of King Ahav, Elijah did not permit it to reign for three and a half years. Next we find out in Malachi that just before the end, Elijah will be returned to earth to announce the coming of the end. Then in Revelation we find out that just before the end, two witnesses will appear and they will stop the reign for three and a half years. Obviously, one of the two witnesses is Elijah. And he's going to do in the end times the same thing he did in Ahab's day. Stop the rain for exactly 42 months. So, it's, it's patterns, people. It's all about God's patterns. If the God, If God is the God who never changes then neither does his patterns. Okay? In fact, it's widely believed, and I, I think it's probably the case, that the other witness is Moses himself. 
Notice that another thing that these two witnesses will do in the end times is what? Turn water into blood and call down every kind of plague. What does that remind you of? See, that's what Prophet Moses did to Egypt. So it seems pretty likely that Moses is going to be the other prophet. We don't know for sure, but it sure seems so. Now back to our story in 1 Kings 17. Verse 2 says that the Lord told Eliyahu, which by the way generally means El is Yah or dynamically God is Yehovah, that now he has given Ahav the bad news, he needs to flee and, and, and the vicinity needs to hide. And specifically, he's to go east. He's to hide in the Wadi Crete near the Jordan River. And this time, Elijah is in Samaria, right here. So east of him is hill country and eventually the Jordan River. But did he cross over and go even further east than the Jordan River? Or did he merely go east from Samaria and stay somewhere in the West Bank, on the West Bank area of, of the Jordan? This isn't clear. But most scholars seem to believe he went into the Transjordan area and he hid there. This would put him further away from King Ahav, where the king had less influence, and so Elijah would be, well, he'd at least be more difficult to find. Well, wherever he was to hide, he was to stay away from people. And he was to also not to be near any food source. So the Lord commanded the ravens to feed him. Now to command the ravens means to reprogram their instincts. Okay? It means to make what would be unnatural for ravens to do seem natural to them. In this case it was to deliver food morsels fit for a human to Elijah. Now, the later rabbis struggled with this because they felt that the idea of ravens bringing food to Elijah was just too problematic. First, it sounds too improbable that ravens would bring edible food to a human being. Second, ravens are classified as unclean birds. Would God use an unclean creature to bring sustenance to perhaps the greatest and holiest prophet ever known, especially if he was a Levite priest. And since ravens will eat almost anything, it was unimaginable to the rabbis that the food that the ravens delivered would have been kosher. <laughs> Thus they decided that since the Hebrew word for ravens is oreb, and with a little stretching, it could be interpreted as arab, that this would indicate that the Arab trade merchants and not scavenger birds fed Elijah. Other rabbis said the word is meant to designate a nearby, a nearby town called Oreb, which nobody had ever heard of. And so the townspeople of this town called Oreb fed him. None of this is satisfactory. And it only seeks to harmonize rabbinic Judaism and it's strict rules of kashrut with the, with the biblical passage. That's all it is. The thing is, these Talmudic traditions ignore the intended miraculous nature 
the ravens feeding Elijah. Even more, one can only imagine how the level and intensity of Elijah's faith and trust in Yehovah must have increased as a result of such an unimaginable miracle. He was going to need the ultimate faith of which a human is capable to do what God had planned for him. So his time in hiding was much more than mere waiting. It was preparation. In fact, there is probably a message to Elijah and to us in God's choice of ravens just because they are unclean birds. We're going to see why in a moment. Now, of course, Eliyahu would have also needed water. So the Lord had him to go live by a wadi. Now, a wadi is typically a dry riverbed, but not always. Sometimes it's just a mostly dry riverbed that has a small brook that flows through it during much, if not all, of the year. That's the kind of thing that's being contemplated here. But by being at this brook, when the coming drought took full hold, Elijah would be among the first to know when it dried up. And sure enough, in time, in verse 7, it says that the water course dries up, it goes underground due to the lack of the rain. Well, once the drought had taken hold, and its effects were bearing down hard on the people, the Lord told Eliyahu to go to a place called Tsarfat. This was a village in Sidon, the main city in the nation of Tyre. Now, I told you at the beginning of our lesson to watch for this, because Sidon of Tyre was Jezebel's hometown. It was located within her father Ethbal's kingdom. Elijah was instructed to, by God to go and live with the widow who resided in Sarfat. God had prepared this widow for this purpose. But take notice, this widow was a Gentile woman. And according to Jewish tradition, that made her unclean. Now, naturally the rabbis could not tolerate this prospect. So they decided she wasn't really a Gentile after all. But rather she was the widow of the Jewish prophet Amittai. And even more, she was the mother of the prophet Jonah. Yeah, that Jonah. Of course, all of this is pure fantasy, but it sure seemed to fix the problem. So Elijah was first fed by unclean birds, and then he went to live and be fed in the home of a Gentile widow. Now naturally, this is all indicative of what would be so explosively manifest in Yeshua's day. That Gentiles would be intimately involved in and be joint beneficiaries along with the Hebrews of God's plan of redemption. Something that the vast bulk of the Jewish leadership couldn't fathom, let alone accept. But Elijah didn't know who this widow was. And the widow didn't consciously know that she would host God's prophet. So somehow they had to discover one another. And when Elijah arrived at the city gates, he saw this a widow gathering sticks. He, and he would have 
known she was a widow by her widow's garments and understood her condition of poverty by these puny sticks she was gathering up to create a modest cooking fire. And he asked her for a drink of water. She complied. Then he asked her to bring him some bread to eat. She said she didn't have any. All she had was this small amount of flour, ground grain, and a little bit of olive oil in a jar. In fact, she explained that once she used the stick she was gathering to create a cooking fire, she would cook the tiny remainder of flour, she and her son would eat the bread, and then they'd starve to death because this was the last of their provisions. Well, it wasn't primarily because she was poor that she would starve to death. It was because the drought Elijah had called down from heaven affected the weather all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And that included the nation of Tyre. There was simply no food except for those who had enough funds to pay exorbitantly for what limited supplies there were or could be imported. And that leaves a poor widow and her family without. Now, interestingly, in her reply to Elijah, she says, As Yehovah your God lives, meaning she knew of the God of Israel. She knew that Elijah was an Israelite. And her response, his response to her sets the stage for another miracle. He tells her, do not fear. Go ahead, do as he asked, bake a small loaf for him to eat, and once he's served, bake more for herself and her son. But he says, Jehovah God of Israel will reward her for her obedience, for her kindness, by supernaturally assuring that no matter how much flour she takes out of her little flour jug, it's never going to become empty. At least not until the rains start again, crops begin to grow, the nation's food supply is back to normal. She believed Elijah. She did as he asked. And sure enough, she and her family never went hungry during the entire three and a half year period of the drought. But see, this also speaks loudly of this Gentile woman having but the simplest of faith in the word of the Israelite God as spoken by his prophet and that was sufficient for her to be delivered from death. She gave up the familiar, the comfortable, even the rational and the logical as well as the certainty of what she had grown up with within her own culture. And she did it all on faith. Faith in the God of Israel. She trusted Jehovah with her and her son's lives. And again, it's critical to grasp this was a Gentile woman, not a Hebrew woman. And now we understand that part of the Lord's preparation of this woman was to receive God's prophet, to receive God's word. And it was all because of a faith that the Lord had planted within her, unbeknownst to her. I mean, what could be a clearer picture of how anyone, especially a Gentile, would become a believer in the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, beginning nine centuries into the future? The simplest faith 
in the Messiah was sufficient for deliverance. And it mattered not whether one was a Jew or a Gentile. In fact, let's return for a moment to Luke 4 to see just how well what we studied plays into a teaching of Yeshua. Back again in Luke 24 to 26. He says, Yes, I tell you no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Uh, it's, it's true. I'm telling you when Eliyahu was in Israel and the sky was sealed off for three and a half years so that the, all the land suffered a severe famine, there were many widows. But Elijah was sent to none of them. Only to the widow in Zarphat and the land of Sidon. The point of this passage is that God could have sent Elijah to any number of Hebrew widows in the land of Israel. But instead, he chose to send him to a Gentile widow in a foreign nation of people who weren't his own. Why? Because the northern kingdom of Israel was now so perverted and apostate that this greatest prophet of God wasn't welcome even in his own nation. Is that not what we see happen with Yeshua and later his disciples and apostles? They were welcomed by Gentiles in foreign lands, but were driven out of synagogues and Jewish villages in the Holy Land. Truly, Elijah was a shadow of things to come on a number of levels. But then a terrible thing happens. This faithful widow's son takes ill and he dies. Now some Christian scholars and rabbis have tried to say that the boy's breathing was, was merely shallow enough that it couldn't be detected and so he wasn't dead. But that's not true. Saying that his breath left him, that his breathing stopped, was just a standard saying that meant death. It wasn't a technical medical report of his cardiovascular system. Okay. The idea that ancient people couldn't tell the difference between shallow breathing and a dead person is ludicrous. I mean, they dealt with death on a more regular basis and more intimately than any modern person of the Western culture, except perhaps for a doctor or a nurse, the boy was clearly dead. But then this distraught woman made a startling accusation towards Elijah. She wants to know why Elijah would come to her, accept her hospitality and kindness, and then bring down God's wrath upon her for her sins. In other words, she was well aware of her sins. But until now, God hadn't been near enough for him to be aware of her sins. Remember, it was believed that gods were territorial. So Jehovah lived over in Israel, not, not in Sidon. But now that God's prophet Elijah was here in Sidon, he drew attention to her and to her family. And the result was that God now saw her sins. And so he's punishing her for her sins by killing her son. Of course, what we're witnessing coming from this woman of simple faith in but very little knowledge of God 
his pagan thoughts and superstitions that were so prevalent and accepted in her day. And, and, and this is why I say to you without ceasing that simple faith is good enough for salvation but maturing of the believer must commence immediately or else th those carnal and pagan thoughts that we've lived all of our days with before we knew Messiah they're going to get all mixed up with God's truth. We must begin to study His Word from the beginning in Genesis. From the beginning. And then we apply and practice those teachings to our lives or we're going to live in the same current condition of that widow in Sarfat. Confused. Oh, but so certain of what we think to be the truth even though it's not. Elijah grabbed the dead boy. He took him upstairs to his bed. He laid him in it in an earnest prayer. He asked the Lord, Was it you who killed this child? That was the boy's mother's explanation. And then he prayed that the father would return that life to this child. Now we have to remember here that this was far more than merely a sad death of a boy without a son to care for her later in life, this widow faced the most horrendous of prospects. Thus, for God to kill her son was indeed not a punishment for her in the sense of, of merely experiencing the excruciating pain of loss of her child, but rather it was dooming her to a life of deprivation and bitterness when she became too old to care for herself and had no son to watch over her. It also meant an end to her deceased husband's life essence that was thought to permeate through sons. So her torment was far greater than the sadness of the premature death of an innocent child. And with the case, as with the case of the man born blind, as mentioned in John 9, the death of the widow's son was not meant as a medium of punishment for this woman's sins. Rather, it was allowed so that the Lord can demonstrate His glory and reveal His works through it. So Yehovah did something unbelievable. For the first recorded time in the Bible, we have bodily resurrection from the dead. And curiously, it was a Gentile boy who was raised by the prayers of a Hebrew prophet and came from the power of the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that brought this boy back to life. The boy, now back to life, was handed over to his relieved mother. Elijah, seeking no credit, merely says, See, your son's alive. And by means of this miracle, we see Elijah was also kind of a forerunner of Messiah Yeshua. But we can also imagine the incredible leap in faith that must have occurred not only in this, this half-heathen woman of Zarfat, 
who possessed nothing but a mustard seed's worth of faith. But also in Elijah, he was going to need it. This chapter ends with this woman moving from half-heathen to fully transformed. She expresses her now implicit faith in Yehovah God of Israel as the true God who speaks only the truth. As the only God who can bring life back to the dead. We're going to continue with Eliza's adventures next time as we take up chapter 18. Okay. Okay.